Our second scripture lesson this morning comes from the Gospel according to John, chapter 20, starting in verse 19. Hear now the word of the Lord. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his sides. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hand, and put my finger in the mark of the nails, and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet come to believe. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. This, too, is the word of God for the people of God. I read a story recently about two little girls who were convinced that they had a creature living in their bedroom. They told their parents about this creature, but their parents didn't really believe them. It was your typical monster-in-the-closet story. Mom and Dad would, you know, peek around the room and check under the bed, but then pat the girls on the head and send them on their way. The youngest girl, who was seven, started refusing to sleep in her room. So slightly exasperated, mom and dad allowed her to sleep in the guest room. And in an effort to give her a little peace of mind, they set up mouse traps. And unsurprising to the parents, the traps turned up nothing. And so days pass, days go by, and one afternoon, the oldest daughter, who's 10, comes screaming into her parents' room. The creature, the creature, she's crying. She insists that it's in there. And her parents, they can see this fear on her face, and so they follow her back to their bedroom. She points at the open closet door, and Dad sticks his head into the closet, and staring back at him is a possum. For days days a possum had been living in their home, and those little girls knew it. The creature had frightened them and disturbed their sleeping habits, and it had been real all along. 
Dad caught the possum and sent it back outside where it belonged, and things soon went back to normal, which, of course, would have happened sooner if the parents had not doubted what their children were telling them. But, you know, blessed are those who have seen and yet, or have not seen and yet come to believe. Am I right? But, I mean, can we really blame them? Doubt in that circumstance seems like a pretty reasonable reaction. In retrospect, with the benefit of hindsight, we can shake our heads and laugh a little at the parents saying things like, well, I bet next time they'll listen to the kids. Though I can't guarantee that any of us, were we in the same position, would not have done the same thing. I think that doubt and asking questions and wanting to see before we believe is a normal part of being human. Refusing to take things at face value, pushing for more information, it's not only natural, but it has also been a vital part of our progress as humans. Think about the countless inventors and leaders who refused to believe something that was commonly held as truth without more proof, without evidence. The boundaries that were pushed, the things that were created because women and men allowed themselves to doubt, to ask questions, to discover more proof on their own. And so doubt, it's not all bad, right? But if that is the case, then what do we make of this post-resurrection story? If doubt is simply a part of being human, how do we reconcile the treatment of Thomas when he asks for more than words, for something tangible before he's willing to believe that Jesus is indeed alive? Thomas gets a really bad reputation. I mean, we don't ever just call him Thomas or even the twin. He is always doubting Thomas. Always. It's so common, in fact, that calling someone a doubting Thomas is a regular occurrence in even secular vernacular. Even outside the church, folks use it to brand people who are skeptics or those who refuse to believe without proof. And when I read this text from John's Gospel, I have to wonder, are we, are we being fair to Thomas? Our reading this morning, it picks up right after Mary Magdalene has met the risen Jesus. We are literally still on Easter Sunday. Mary has been to the tomb and found it empty. And when Mary is, is lingering, weeping for the loss of her teacher and her friend, she encounters a man who she initially mistakes for a gardener. He calls her by name, and Mary suddenly realizes that it's Jesus, and she cries out, but the risen Jesus insists that she leaves, that she goes to find the disciples and share with them what she has seen. He tells her to go and tell them that she has seen the Lord, which is exactly what Mary, has, what Mary does. Verse 18 of this chapter reads, Mary Magdalene went and announces to the disciple, or announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she told them the things he had said to her. So the, the disciples have heard from an eyewitness that Jesus is alive. But here they are, locked in a room because they are afraid. They have been told that the Lord is alive and they are hiding. And I suppose it isn't explicit, but I think it's pretty clear that these disciples, they don't believe Mary. They doubt her word. And so while they're hiding out, um, afraid of the Jewish leadership with no real belief that Jesus is risen, 
Jesus appears among them. He doesn't knock on the door or unlock it. He just appears in the middle of the room and says, peace be with you. And like Pastor Lee said, it's a fitting greeting because I imagine having Jesus show up suddenly in the middle of a locked room would have been startling, to say the least. And Jesus, he shows them his hands and his side, the marks left by the wounds of the crucifixion. And this is important. The disciples do not react to Jesus's presence until he shows them the marks. Even then, their reaction isn't, I don't know, like massive or exciting. All the text tells us is that they rejoice, which, fine, but honestly, it's not like they, one, believed Mary Magdalene in the first place, two, immediately recognized Jesus for who he was, or three, threw themselves on the floor confessing that Jesus was risen indeed. So I I really don't think the disciples get a lot of points here. And anyway, you know, Jesus, he, he breathes the Holy Spirit onto his gathered friends. He gives them a charge and then presumably disappears. And we know that, that Thomas isn't there. He's absent from that locked room, and we don't really know why or where he was. He just, for some reason, wasn't there to see Jesus appear and to receive the Holy Spirit from him. Thomas turns up, and the disciples tell him what has happened, and his response is, I won't believe it until I see and touch the marks on his hands and his sides for myself. <clears throat> and honestly, is Thomas asking for too much? He literally just wants the same experience that his colleagues got. That's all. No more, no less. I sort of imagine Andrew or Matthew saying, Thomas, where were you, man? Jesus appeared out of nowhere, and we, he let us see the marks on his hands and on his side, and we knew it was him, and it was crazy. Jesus is alive. And a disappointed Thomas just sort of shrugging and sighing and thinking, shoot, I hope this happens to me too. Is it so unreasonable for him to ask for the same thing, for the same proof? It's just, you know, Thomas isn't any more willing to take the disciples' word for for it than the disciples were to take Mary Magdalene's word for it. There is a direct parallel to be drawn between the disciples and Thomas here. Mary arrives proclaiming this shocking but wonderful news, and the disciples do not believe And not unlike Mary, who initially mistook Jesus as a gardener, when Jesus appears before them, they are only certain of who he is when they see his hands and his side. Thomas hears the shocking and wonderful news from the other disciples and insists that he get the same proof that they got. It seems natural to me. And the way that early Christian communities struggled to perceive and believe is a recurring theme in resurrection stories. Mary thinks that Jesus is a gardener. The disciples are in hiding. We've got our pal Downing Thomas. And there are other similar encounters with Jesus coming later in this gospel. Thomas is not the only person struggling to wrap his head around the resurrection. It doesn't seem fair, then, that when Jesus shows up again eight days later, that Thomas is the one who gets called out for his lack of belief. History would label Thomas a doubter, but he doesn't question or doubt any more than the rest of the disciples. If anything, he simply doubts the disciples and their word, 
And not for nothing, but these good and faithful disciples who have literally had an encounter with the risen Lord are still hanging out in a locked room eight days later. And, and what's more, when Jesus does show up again, Thomas doesn't, doesn't ask Jesus to see his hands or his side. He doesn't demand to be given proof. He, Jesus, he offers them to Thomas. He offers them to him immediately. Thomas is also the only player in the text with this reaction to Jesus. He's the only one in this passage to respond in a meaningful way to Christ's presence. Thomas immediately confesses that Jesus is his Lord and his God. And so the thing is, Thomas, Thomas isn't really a doubter. We really ought to be calling him seeing is believing Thomas, but that isn't catchy. Um, and we really, we shouldn't be holding him to a different standard from the rest of the disciples. All of them struggled with disbelief. All of them fall short of accepting the truth of resurrection. So I think when Jesus is speaking to Thomas, he really is speaking to the, all of the gathered disciples. And in a much broader sense, the author of this gospel is speaking to the community to which he is writing. John's gospel often talks about signs, these miraculous things that Jesus would do, creating wonder and awe in the folks that witness them. And Jesus often scolds the crowd and the disciples for focusing too much on the signs and not fixing their minds on higher, greater things. The feeding of the 5,000 in chapter 6, for example. Jesus insists that they do not fixate on how 5,000 were fed with just a few loaves, but rather that they shift their understanding into a higher gear and see how the bread that Jesus is offering is the bread of life itself and that Jesus himself is that bread. This tension between dazzling signs and genuine faith runs through the whole gospel, culminating in this week's passage, the risen Jesus' encounter with Thomas. Because what I think Jesus and the author of the gospel are getting at is that it's really easy to get caught up in tangibly miraculous things. But faith in the absence of that is going to be important absolutely vital, in fact. If the disciples and the community of believers are going to carry on after Jesus is no longer on earth, they're going to need to have faith without miracles. It's as if Jesus says to them, you know, I understand your need to see and touch my body in order to believe, but there's an even deeper form of faith and trust, an even higher gear of understanding that is not dependent on signs and wonders but rather has the ears and eyes to discern me everywhere throughout creation. I'm asking you to engage in that deeper faith. I'm going to leave you with the Holy Spirit and send you out away from my physical body into an even deeper, blessed intimacy with me. Even my resurrection, the greatest sign, the greatest miracle of all is not the end of the road for you. Take the Holy Spirit and climb higher. There is so much more to come. Because not long after this scene, Jesus would be gone, ascending back to heaven, and the disciples would be left with a charge to proclaim the kingdom of God, to spread the gospel without Jesus around to help them. If anyone else is going to come to faith 
in Jesus as Messiah, they are going to do so because of the witness of the disciples. The disciples would go out and proclaim the truth of God's power and love for creation as demonstrated in those miraculous signs they witnessed, the greatest, of course, being the resurrection. That is how we have come to faith. 2,000-plus years removed from the events of John's gospel, we sit here in the sanctuary professing a belief in the risen Lord because of what we have been told and what we have experienced in some form or another in the time of post-resurrection and post-ascension. None of us, to the best of my knowledge, met a risen Jesus outside an empty tomb. None of us were able to place our fingers on nail-scarred hands. We believe because of the witness that was left for us for generations. And that does not mean, however, that we willingly follow the faith of our fathers and mothers without question without asking for more information, for something tangible. It does not mean that we do not struggle with disbelief. I think that wrestling with faith, asking questions, trying to understand more is one of the healthiest things we can do as people. Lots of people, even people with degrees in things like this, struggle with wrapping our heads around things like the accuracy of the Bible, atonement, and the resurrection, to name but a few. In Judaism, there is this belief that the scriptures and faith are meant to be wrestled with. Like Jacob wrestled with God on the banks of the river Jabbok. All night, Jacob wrestles with God on the banks of this river, wrestling with this unnamed figure, refusing to surrender. And he does not win, per se, but before the figure leaves, um, this figure who we've come to interpret as God, um, he blesses Jacob and then leaves him. So in the same way, we are meant to wrestle. And we may not get the answer that we're looking for, but we are blessed in our searching. So I know that the disciples went out into the world after the ascension, teaching and proclaiming Jesus' death and resurrection. And I also have no doubt that they had questions and misgivings and felt uncertain because they were human, like we are. But they persisted in sharing what they held to be true. Do you have doubts and questions? You're in pretty good company. Do you believe firmly? Well, you're in pretty good company too. The point is, we're all on this journey together, this journey of faith trying to grasp and understand and know together. Theologian Karl Barth pointed out that miracle stories and resurrection stories most of all are designed to astonish. And astonishment, after all, is a blend of belief and disbelief. Like Thomas, we may dream about having the absolute truth of something firmly in our hands We speak casually about grasping a concept or mastering a subject. I mean, my degree is literally called Master of Divinity, which is silly. Um, Jesus, because Jesus will not, will neither be grasped, nor will Jesus ever be mastered. He will not be circumscribed by Thomas's hunger for certainty or by ours. Jesus is no mere object for our, you know, detached analysis or full understanding, full grasp. And accordingly, you know, Christians should um, neither merely believe miracle stories, for that would mean that 
we're not truly astonished by them, nor should we merely disbelieve them, for that would also mean that we are not truly astonished by them. Rather, these stories, these concepts, these things, they should continually leave us taken aback, helping us call into question our assumptions about what may or may not be possible or impossible, and then inviting us into an open-minded, open-hearted posture of Easter faith and Easter doubt and Easter joy. Friends, it is my hope that wherever you find yourself on the scale of belief to doubt, that you would know that God is good and God's steadfast love is broad and enduring. At the end of the day, the tomb is empty and we are freed to be astonished and in wonder and to explore and to question because the empty tomb is not the end. It is merely our astonishing beginning, and of that I have absolutely no doubt. Amen.